Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you were willing to look down and see us in our need and provide a way, make a way of rescue for us. And that as we think about the Christmas season, that we're celebrating Emmanuel, God with us, the incarnation of Jesus Christ as you came and were born in a place of humility and you humbled yourself and you took on the form of a servant and you became obedient to death, even the death of the cross, but you did that for those who were hopeless and helpless without you, who didn't deserve it at all. Pray that we would see what grace is all about, that we'd allow that grace to permeate our thinking and to flow in and through us as you work in us to produce that same kind of attitude towards others in our lives so that we could be gracious with one another. Not because we naturally would be, but because with your spirit working to make us new, to transform us into the image of your son, to give us the mind of Christ, that as we're focused on you and enjoying fellowship with you, that you could produce that kind of living, that kind of thinking first, and then that kind of living second in us so that we'd be a very gracious group of people to be around. Uh, pray that we wouldn't get too big for our britches. We wouldn't get too proud of ourselves. That when we have a little bit of success, we would stay humble. That we wouldn't let that success go to our minds and take all of the credit and all the glory. We'd know that it's to God be the glory, great things he has done. Anything good happening in our life is ultimately because you're allowing that to happen or in the spiritual realm, that you're the one facilitating and empowering, enabling and equipping us so that's possible. Pray that you would keep us humble that you would give us boldness to then proclaim your message of hope to a lost and dying world around us. Pray that we wouldn't get captivated by the things of this world, but we would enjoy those things that you've blessed us with and provided, but we wouldn't put them in a place of exaltation or put them higher than you, lift them up to a place of preeminence that is greater than our interest in you. Pray that we would keep you at the top of the heap where you belong to be, you deserve to be. Pray that you would help us to have that mindset each and every day. And pray that we would just see that even when things aren't going the way we want them to or we planned them to go, that you're still working even in those moments too. And that you want to use those trials and those difficulties for our good and for our benefit. Pray that they would help us as we go through them to teach us to trust you more so that you would be more real to us than you had been previously. Pray that you would help us to have those kinds of that kind of thinking. In Jesus' name, amen. You can turn if you want to to Acts chapter... 28, Acts chapter 28. We're in the home stretch here. I've said that the last few church fellowship nights because we're closing out the book of Acts. Well, Acts chapter 28, that's it. This is the last chapter. And so that's where we'll be spending our time, Lord willing, in the first 10 verses here of Acts chapter 28. The title of tonight's message is God Works Through Disaster. God Works Through Disaster. Now, when you think of that word, disaster, a disaster is any event that brings about unfortunate or undesirable consequences in life. So, kids, can you think of some things that maybe have happened in your life where you said, well, that's a disaster, or you've thought, that didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. It had undesirable consequences. It didn't, it was unfortunate, meaning Lots of examples, but as kids, your perspective of what something, what is a disaster is different than as you age, your perspective of something that's a big deal might change. Because when you're young, you have a way of thinking that 
your, well, your world is, is kind of small. And so the things that you're really looking forward to the most, they're really not that big of things in the grand scheme of things sometimes. What I mean by that is, let's just say, for example, you really, really had your heart set on getting together with your cousins. Or you really, really had your heart set on having a sleepover with some of your friends. Or you really, really had your heart set on some kind of a camping trip or a, a trip to Valley Fair or something like that. Do all of those plans come to fruition or do they all happen the way we planned? No, sometimes things get in the way. Things interfere with those things happening. And so as a kid, sometimes we have this sense that, well, that's a disaster that we weren't able to do that. That's so, that's a catastrophe, same kind of a word. And you know, the thing about disasters and catastrophes is they're unfortunate and they're undesirable in a human sense. And they're never planned, and they're never really anticipated. Now, sometimes as an adult, you can see something coming just based on, you see the pieces falling into place, and you see that's a disaster waiting to happen. Who's ever said that phrase, or you understand that phrase? That's a disaster waiting to happen, because through experience, you've seen that even maybe with people who are less mature than you, with even young people, you see, I've been down that road before, And so you can identify the steps that are likely to lead up to an outcome that's predictable from somebody who's been through it, but that person that's going down that road is completely unaware that there's a train wreck ahead in their life because they don't realize that these incremental steps that they're taking and these decisions that they're making, they're going to have this certain outcome. Well, when we're talking about disaster here, though, we're talking about it, though, from a perspective of having faith in God, being, being a man or woman of faith, understanding that though there are things that happen in life that there's no way to, there's no way to sugarcoat it, they're disasters from a human perspective. They're cat- catastrophic from a human perspective. They are not anything anybody would wish on themselves or others. But yet when we look at it from a faith perspective, we see that while those things aren't necessarily desirable in our humanity, yet we can still praise God in those circumstances, knowing that God is in the business of taking catastrophes, taking disasters, and working through them for our good. That he can bring good from those really difficult and hard things that in our flesh we wish we'd never have had to go through. Which, which person is sitting around wishing that they could go through a medical emergency. Nobody. We have some here, even tonight, recovering from unexpected medical, medical things, right? We're not really sitting around wishing for them, but does God show himself faithful in those trials and in those circumstances? Does God work behind the scenes to use those things for our good, to draw us nearer to him, to strengthen our faith? And that's what this lesson here tonight is about. God works through disaster. You see, there's all kinds of different kinds of disaster in life. They take various forms. Sometimes you have natural disasters, which we're going to be talking about tonight, a shipwreck. Sometimes there's financial disaster. There's personal disasters. There's relational disasters. There's physical disasters. Things that would be unfortunate or unintended or undesirable from, again, a human perspective. Things that a person is not naturally hoping would happen. Things that are brought about from a variety of different causes. There's a lot of different reasons why those types of things happen in our lives. But that's not really the message or the principle that 
Luke is trying to convey here in the book of Acts about the Apostle Paul's life, the principle that God's trying to communicate through Luke is that regardless of the origin of those disasters or those hard things, God faithfully undertakes to use those circumstances for your good. Not just for your good, but for both your good and the good of others around you. Not just for your good and the good of others around you, but also for his glory. So at least three potential positive aspects that God can bring from the ashes of the disasters that we're facing in our life. And it reminded me when I think about God working through disaster, it reminded me of a song lyric that is fairly, a fairly new song that says, your world's not falling apart, it's falling into place as God's using the things that seem like they're disasters and he's using them to draw you nearer to him. Now, I want to be clear, God isn't necessarily making those things happen. There's, again, a variety of different reasons why those hard things are what we would call disasters, why they come to be. They're sovereignly permitted. God does bring about, at times, trials in our lives. Oftentimes, those circumstances are brought about just by the curse of sin on the world around us, other people's choices that impact us and bring about those things, our own choices that bring about unintended or what we would call undesirable outcomes in our lives. So there's a lot of different causes of them, but ultimately the point in it all is that God is faithful, no matter what the cause of it is, to use those disasters or those circumstances in our lives for our good if our thinking is right. We can benefit from it if our thinking is right. So let's take a look at how God worked through a natural disaster. And we introduced this idea in chapter 27, which we looked at last time we had a church fellowship night. It was a shipwreck. Let's look at how he used that natural disaster, though, in Paul's life. Natural disaster meaning a storm came up. Storm led to a shipwreck. And that was a disaster in the sense that it was unfortunate and undesirable, again, from a human perspective. But let's look at how God worked through that natural disaster in Paul's life and, the life and in the lives of others around him and ultimately for his own glory. So by way of a little bit of background here, I'm going to go fast with this, but in case anyone hasn't been here for our build-up to this, Paul went to Jerusalem on his third missionary journey. He knew the danger that he faced. He was arrested there was no legitimate reason for it. There's no legitimate charges ever brought against him. He was examined. He had trials of sorts by two different governors and a king, always being found to be without guilt, but yet remaining in bondage either way for more than two years. Paul then had requested that he would appeal his case to Caesar, and so he was sent to Rome, all despite being innocent at every stage of the inquiry up to this point. And so off to Rome he goes, and to get there, it's going to involve a ship. Well, we saw in chapter 27 that that ship wrecked, and the way we ended our lesson last time was with the last verses here where it said, but the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose, meaning they had, the soldiers had said, if the ship is going to wreck, let's kill the prisoners so that they don't escape. Because Romans, the Roman culture didn't tolerate soldiers losing their captives. And you saw that. Where's another example of where we saw somebody who was very fearful about losing their captives when, when they were Roman, under Roman rule? 
was another example, kids, of where somebody was distraught because they had been given responsibility to safeguard people in jail and they had, there was an opportunity for them to go free. That's right. <laughs> there was an earthquake that, were, that happened, and who was in jail? Okay, same guy, right? We got it's a hand in the back. Paul and Silas were in jail, right? Now, what did, that, what did that jailer think to do when he thought the prisoners had escaped? Kill himself. Somebody said it out loud. Sorry, bud. I saw you raise your hand. Uh, he, they thought to kill themselves because the punishment from the Romans was going to be worse than death itself. And so that's sort of the mentality there. But what happens? The, the favorable uh, centurion intervenes and keeps them from their purpose. And they commanded that they all jump into the water. And those who could swim went first. And, and the rest floated on some parts of the ships and some boards. And how does it end? And so it was that all escaped safely to land. Okay. So where did they escape to? They escaped to an island called Malta. They escaped to an island called Malta. Let's read verse 1 of chapter 28. Now, when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was, was called Malta. So that's where they escaped to. And Malta was this island that was 18 miles long. Picture this, 18 miles long. So uh, roughly the distance between, I would say, Biwabic and Virginia, something like that. Uh, maybe Aurora to Virginia. I forget how far that is. And so roughly 18 miles long. So pretty long island and 8 miles wide. So a pretty wide island too. Now that island is about 58 miles off of the coast of Sicily. So Rome is a part of, well, modern day, it's a, it's a part of the, the city of Rome, is a, is a city in Italy. And so in the bottom part of that is a place that's called Sicily. And that is the bottom edge of that boot that makes up Italy. And the distance from the bottom of that to this island is 58 miles. Now, on the other side of the island, the next closest coast is actually off Africa, and that's 180 miles. So a lot of details you probably didn't need, but that is how far this island was from the mainland that they needed to eventually go to, the mainland of the Roman Empire, which was headquartered again in the city of Rome. And so that island had been colonized about 1,000 B.C., about 1,000 B.C. And starting in 218 B.C., it was captured by Rome, and so it had been under Roman rule for quite a while at this time. And so the way that the colony had been established is that Augustus, who had captured this, who had been in charge when this island was captured, he started to settle army veterans and their families there. So kind of fascinating that this island was full of some military types that had served the Roman Empire and were being settled here by Augustus. So the land or the island was known for its prosperity and its architecture. The population not only spoke Phoenician, but also they spoke Latin and Greek, the trade language of the day. And so that's kind of the picture of where they're landing. So let's read a little bit more about the people there in Malta, Malta, verse 2. And the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled the fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. So we start out with this idea that there's a shipwreck, unfortunate, 
a catastrophe in some ways, a disaster in some ways, again, from a human perspective. But no lives are lost, and everybody is greeted very warmly here in Malta. So it's a friendly reception. But we're going to find out we're dealing with a very superstitious people, as people in general tend to be superstitious. They tend to have a God awareness, a sense that there's something greater than themselves. Very often, though, without God's truth, they don't know how to express that interest in something bigger than themselves. And so they take worship and they take religion and they take it in a direction that is contrary to God's revealed truth because they have a sense that there is a God that is out there because of creation itself, because of their conscience. They have this sense that there is something bigger. But this is a religious, superstitious type of a people. Let's read what happens. Verses 3 through 6. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, you see he wasn't too, too proud to participate in even making this fire. He laid them on the fire. A viper came out because of the heat and it bit him in the hand. So this viper bit him in the hand. Now, when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, who wants to, hey, kids, how many of you want to experience that? We got one hand in the back, okay. So there's this viper that's hanging from their hand because it's bit them. So when they saw that, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. They thought for sure he was a goner. And they had this sense that people, people kind of get what they deserve in life. That's a concept that you still hear even today. People have a general sense that if I'm kind and if I'm nice and if I do the right things, then the, the universe will pay me back with good and kind things. It's a word that you might hear kids, they usually refer to that as like karma. This idea that if you do good things, then you get good things back. If, you're, if you invest kindness, then you get, in, uh, you get that back. You know what the problem with that is that it's not only it's not true because God never promises that, but secondarily, it skips the true God. It attributes just this mysticism to the world around us and saying, well, we know there's some kind of a spiritual life that is greater than us. And the way we're going to express that is we're going to say that there's just all this one generic kind of a spirituality out there. It's a force of types that is rewarding people for good things and punishing them for bad things. And that's not what the Bible teaches. There is one true God and he is all powerful, but that is not how he expresses himself or how he communicates what is true. That is not what he says is true. But that's what these people believed. And so then we keep reading. But he shook off the creature into the fire and he suffered no harm. So this didn't turn out the way they thought it would. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. So this must have been a pretty dangerous kind of a snake. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds, and this is how fickle and mystical these people were, and they said that he was a god. (laughs) That he was a god. Because they saw something they couldn't explain. And so, in doing so, their conclusion was incorrect, but their conclusion was that Paul must be a god. Now, let's look at the way that God intervenes in their lives. We'll, we'll get to some specific examples about it, but let's look at how, 
what happens after this, the next part of the story. Let's read these about a miracle work in God and how he was so faithful to show people who was a true speaker on his behalf. You could say, you know, if Paul was an apostle that was a prophet in the sense that he was speaking, God was speaking through him and communicating his truths through the apostle Paul, then how could God help people to know that this was a legitimate source of truth? What was one of the ways that God helped to show that the people that were speaking on behalf or, or proclaiming or saying that they were speaking on behalf of God, how did God show people that they were authentic or they could be trusted, kids? Any of you remember any stories about what God did for his spokespeople so that they could be trusted? Yeah? Miracles. <laughs> Miracles, right? One of, the, one of the best ways that he would authenticate his prophets is that, one, even in the Old Testament, the things they said had to come true. But if, even if you think about Elijah and some of the miracles that were happened through him, Elisha, bringing people back to life, uh, being able to even have victory over Jezebel's false uh, prophets on Mount Carmel, uh, a miracle working God who would send down fire from heaven to show that he was the one true God. How about parting the Red Sea and taking down the walls of Jericho? And a lot of that he would do, though, in conjunction with something a prophet had said so that by what he had said coming true, the people would know this is God is speaking through this person. And so in the New Testament, Jesus did many miracles to authenticate who he was, right? And in addition, the apostles, they were able to do things miraculously, not to show off, but to show that the things they were saying about God were true because they had supernatural abilities that only God could provide or produce in them. All right, so let's read about how the Apostle Paul had some of these abilities too. So we pick up in verse 7. In that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Doesn't sound too good. That's being real sick. Paul went into him and prayed. See how he started with giving God all the glory, speaking to the Lord about it. And he laid his hands on him and he healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. They also honored us in many ways, and when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. So there, God showed himself through the Apostle Paul. He showed that the Apostle Paul would be speaking his truth so that that truth could be received by this people. And this is what, it's going to take a little bit of speculation on our part. It's going to take us kind of reading between the lines to see how did God work through all of this? How did God work through this disaster of a shipwreck, even in the lives here of the people here on the island of Malta? Now, we're going to see many ways that God worked through all of this in Paul's life. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll start with We'll touch on that, but the primary focus is how did he work in other people's lives? But we'll start with Paul's life. Now, imagine that God, through his intervention here in rescuing Paul from nearly certain death in the shipwreck, that in addition to that, he reminds Paul, I have a purpose for you, by he's bitten by a viper and he does not, he does not die. What would that have done to encourage the Apostle Paul? A lot, right? 
Can you imagine that through God protecting him, that God was effectively kind of speaking to him, that God was like whispering in his ear, Paul, Paul, I'm with you. I'm with you. Can you imagine that? I keep my promises, Paul. I told you you were going to be a witness for me in Rome. So there's nothing to fear. I never fail, ever. Can you see how God would be reminding him him of that through this? How about God effectively saying, you have nothing to fear, Paul. If I'm for you, there's nothing that's going to stop my plan in your life. Or, Paul, 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 I'm completely in control. Remember that. I'm the sovereign God. Nothing is too hard for me. So can you imagine how Paul would have been ministered to himself by these things happening? You see, how else would Paul learn the principles that he would later write about when he wrote the book of Romans? You see, in Romans 8.28, who wants to quote that tonight? Kids, any of you know that? And we know that, let's maybe say it together, kids, and we know that all things work together for good to them who Love God to those who are. You're fading, guys. You're fading out here. They're called according to his purpose, right? Now, Paul had to learn that. He was writing about it later in his life when he was writing the book of Romans. How did he learn that? He learned that through the disasters of life, through the trials of life, by seeing what God could do in these circumstances, these types of circumstances. And so that's how Paul was ministered to or how God worked through this in his life. Now, put yourself in that place. Can you see the value of seeing God in those hard things? Seeing him show up and remind Paul of himself in those things? How about in your own life when you have disasters, but you give it to the Lord and you trust him and you see him work in your own thinking to say, to teach you that these, there are certain things that have lasting eternal value and there are other things that they're not the end of the world. They're small things in the big picture. And even though it's disappointing, you can still trust me that I'm in control and I allowed it to happen. And you can have a positive attitude and respond to me and say, Lord, if you allow this to happen, I'm not going to hang my head down and pout and fuss for the rest of the day or the rest of the month. I'm going to take it from you and I'm going to keep moving forward rejoicing in all the blessings that you've given me and your faithfulness in my life, even though this one thing I was really excited about, it didn't work out that way. Even though this thing happened that was really negative, I can still trust you even in that. Now, how about the lives of his traveling companions? Imagine how God would work through this trial that we've been reading about here in the lives of his traveling companions. Now, who were they? You got an idea back there, Owen? Huh? Murderers were his travel companions? Yeah, you're thinking about the other people who were prisoners, but I'll help you. Luke, who is writing this story, was likely traveling with Paul, and who else got on that boat? Another guy named Aristarchus, right? So if you look back at chapter 27, verses 1 and 2, there's a little bit of debate about this, so you form your own opinion. But this is where we get this idea that Paul, he, again, I've said this many times, but Paul wasn't a lone wolf. He didn't do things on his own. He generally was a part of a team of believers that was seeking to minister to people 
as they worked together. And that was true whether it was Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy, Paul here in Luke and Aristarchus. Usually there was even more than that that were a part of these mission teams and these mission outreaches. So a lot of times people read about the Apostle Paul and his life and they say, here's a guy who is just doing his own thing. And that's not, that's not the case. Chapter 27, let's read verses 1 and 2. And when it was decided that we, see that plural we, should sail to Italy. Now who is writing this? Luke is writing this. So if he's saying the word we, he's including himself in this. That we should sail to Italy. They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship of Adritum, we put we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Of Asia. Now who else was there? Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. Now, who does us have to include? Well, I'm saying my personal opinion on it is that it's Paul, Aristarchus, and Luke make up the us, just like we was made up by Luke and Paul, then added to by Aristarchus. The three of them were on this journey together. Now, again, not the end of the world. If you take a different uh, perspective on that, you're certainly... Welcome to do that. But imagine these guys that were men of faith that were a part of this team that weren't going to leave Paul's side, that were going to accompany him to Rome. We don't know how far they went on the journey. We don't know for sure that they were here right now. But it seems like, it seems possible anyway that that's the case. And so if they were with him, imagine that you were going through a trial with other believers that you were in ministry with. Wouldn't it be encouraging to together as a group to see God working in your midst? How about in this church? As we're a bunch of fellow laborers or we're, we're supposed to be striving together as workmen for the Lord, wanting to serve Him together. And as we see God work in our midst and be faithful even in the face of hard things that we experience as a church family, difficult things that happen at times, isn't it encouraging to be reminded of God's sovereignty and God's faithfulness even in the face of those difficulties? Now, how about the other shipwreck survivors? So that's what Owen was talking about. How about the other 276 people that survived this? Do you think that they were impacted? Do you think that God worked in their lives through this disaster? You think so, Owen? Yeah, I think so. Now, you're going to have to read between the lines a little bit because it doesn't exactly say that. But imagine the impact of surviving death while experiencing Paul's faith in the Lord during the ordeal. Imagine witnessing the miracles and hearing the teaching, potentially often over the course of three months that they were in Malta. These people all waited the winter, three months in Malta. There's 276 of them. Do you think they had some interactions with Paul? Heard some things about Paul? Look at chapters 27 when the ship was sinking. Look what they would have experienced in, in terms of Paul's witness even while the ship was going down in the previous chapter. And as the day was about to dawn, verse 33, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. So he has this leadership role where he's speaking to everybody in a sort of authoritarian kind of a way. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will, fit, will fall from the head of any of you. Paul's making a prediction, a prophecy about something that he could only know because he says, my God, because God talked to him. And I, I believe Paul would have communicated that too. 
And when he had said these things, he took bread, and what did he do? He took bread and he gave thanks to God. Now catch this, in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. And they were all encouraged and also took food for themselves. Does your testimony matter? Yeah. Did Paul give credit where credit was due in all of this? Did he, did he speak of God's glory and how God's faithfulness in preserving and protecting them? The answer is, he certainly did, at a minimum, we know he did it on the boat. But when they came to shore, is it easy to assume that he did there too? Yeah, let's talk about that here as we talk about how did God use this disaster to work into the lives of these citizens or these people who lived on Malta. Now, do you think that Paul preached the gospel to the people of Malta while he was there for three months performing miracles? Do you think he preached the gospel? The answer is absolutely he did. Now, can you say that as absolutely as I just said it and be sure of it? Well, maybe not. But I'm as close to sure about that as you could be. Why? Because there's a pattern of Paul's life that he never varies from. You don't see him ever shunning or missing an opportunity to proclaim Jesus to people. You can trace his missionary journeys and you can see he comes into contact with people. What does he do? We preach him. We proclaim him. He preaches the message of Jesus Christ to everyone that he comes into contact with, with very few exceptions. I'm not sure if you can find one. So is it safe to assume following the pattern of the rest of Acts that Paul likely would have evangelized these, these people? And I think it's, it's easy to come to that conclusion. You see, though Luke gave no account of Paul's evangelizing Malta, but if we follow the pattern of miracles and witness found throughout Acts, one would naturally assume that Paul seized this opportunity to share the gospel with the natives. And another reason I'm almost certain of it is because what did they say about Paul when he didn't die from the serpent? This man must be what? Calvin? A God, right? Now, had that happened to Paul any other times? Yes, it had happened to him another time. We would have to go to Acts 14, but we're running out of time, so we're not going there. But read this story for devotions with your, with your parents, Acts 14, 8 through 18. And what happened is that because of things that people saw Paul do, they, they said he was a god or treated him like a god and in that instance too. And he said, no, there's only one true god. There's only one living god, and it's not me. He used that opportunity to proclaim the God of the Bible and Jesus Christ and his person and work to those individuals. You see, the gospel message is permanently life-changing. These healing miracles that Paul did for these people who lived there, did those, were those permanent? They were permanent maybe in the sense that they fixed that immediate problem, but did, did that solve and heal all of those people for all of the rest of their lives? No, it was a temporary fix to a temporary problem. Well, maybe it was a long-term problem, but... But, you know, the, the effect of the gospel is that it could change these lives forever. You talk about God working through disaster. What better way could God work through disaster than to use it so that people could hear about him and potentially get saved? And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 2, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. 
Since we have this hope that's inside of us, we use great boldness of speech when we have an opportunity to proclaim Jesus to people around us. He had three months of opportunity. I'm certain that he took it. But the question in our lives is, when we have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel, that can save lives. Eternal lives are at stake. Are we going to shine that light into those lives? Are we going to use even the hard things that happen in life, the disasters that happen in our lives? Those disasters always put us into contact with people. And as we we come into contact with people, even in the face of something that's really hard, are we going to focus so much on our trial that we forget about God wanting to speak through us in the midst of that trial to give some hope, the hope that's in us to share that with the people who need to hear it? Or are we going to hide that light? Are we going to be so desperate to be accepted by the world around us that we're going to forget about our mission? Are we going to become so proud of some little bits of success that we have in life that we're going to forget about our mission and all of a sudden start thinking real highly of ourselves? You see, it's only through humility that Paul could respond to disaster in this way. It's only through humility that God could work in his life and Paul could be quick to give God the glory instead of taking the glory for himself. It all comes back to that underlying attitude. Now, at a minimum, we know that these residents of Malta, they responded to these interactions with great respect and generosity towards Paul. That's how our section ends tonight. They also honored us in many ways. And when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. You see, life is a voyage. It's like this ship journey that Paul was on. It has winds. It has angry seas. It has disasters that are barely survived. That is life. But none of it surprises the Lord. The Lord faithfully works through disasters to draw us nearer to Him. The Lord faithfully works through disasters for the benefit of those around us if our focus is on him and we have the right attitude. There's no need for fear. God's working in the disasters in our lives. There's no need for panic. God is working even through the disasters of life as we perceive them to use them in a way that would benefit us and benefit others and bring him glory. There's no need to to fold in the face of life's disasters. The Lord is with you. You see, the outcome and the final destination of this voyage that we're all on, it's certain. It's known in advance. This voyage that you're on through life, it's going to have some shipwrecks. It's going to have some disasters. But children of God, how does that voyage end? It's known. It ends with being with Him for all of eternity. It ends with no more tears, no more sadness, no more sin. So can we have hope and boldness and comfort and encouragement in the face of life's disasters, life's trials, life's catastrophes? And the answer is yes, but only if we have the right perspective. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for this time we can spend in your word. Thank you even for this, the lives of these early church men and women that we've been reading about in the book of Acts. Thank you that we can find some common ground 
and some light and applications to our own lives through these passages that have been recorded in your word. Pray that we would take them to heart, that we would remember that even in the face of hard things, even in the face of things that we would call a disaster, that you're still faithful, you never change, and that you want to use all of those things for our good, for the good of people around us, and for your glory. Pray that we could have that mindset and that attitude as we face those things. In Jesus' name, amen.